covered visions and dreams and how that affects us kind of on a personal level and I kind of meant that as an introduction to the study going into uh, looking at actual passages in the Bible where people have visions of God and see God or experience God in person things like that Uh, sometimes it's a little hard to differentiate in scripture when somebody is actually literally seeing God as opposed to seeing a vision of God. They may not always be the same thing, but sometimes they are. So, uh, and, and I don't know that it's necessarily always relevant, even, because, you know, you're kind of seeing God either way. I don't know, not all visions involve being ushered into the presence of a throne room necessarily in a physical sense, but, but uh, we'll just see how this goes. So, And today I thought we would cover some of the smaller ones try to go through I've got at least three of them and I don't know if we'll get through all three or not we'll try before we get to the big ones because the big ones are really really like Ezekiel I mean you could talk forever on Ezekiel if you wanted to and I don't want to ha- I don't want to tie y'all up for a year on Ezekiel uh, but there's you know Ezekiel then you've got Daniel has some uh, some visions that are mind blowing and, and then if we get into uh, John on Patmos Island and that you know that those obviously are you know that can go on a while but I'm not but, but my focus here isn't to do a word study of a section of scripture as much as just looking at these visions in other words I'm not going to the book of Revelation or the book of Daniel I'm looking at the vision sections in them oh thanks for thanks for turning that on so uh, if y'all need to turn the other one off it's fine whatever if y'all can't hear okay I tend to talk loud so <laughs> Okay, uh, so today we're going to look at, we're going to start with uh, a vision, a couple of visions that you may not be familiar with. I, I wasn't that familiar with these. I'm, I'm sure I've read them, and they kind of seem familiar to me from what I've read them in the past, but they're small, they're what you might call small ones, and so I didn't really, I haven't paid as much attention to them as I have some of the bigger ones when I've studied Scripture but let's look in Ezekiel 24. Do you have your Bibles? Ezekiel, I'm, I'm sorry, let me correct myself. Exodus 24. Exodus 24. Do you have your Bibles? I said Ezekiel, all that threw me off. <laughs> the book of Exodus. So let me kind of set the scene of what's going on here. God. Has is he's wanting to reveal the covenant to Israel, and he wants to do that on Mount Sinai. The Israelites are camped at Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is sort of the original place, as you know, that the Israelites meet God and get the the the, uh, the law. That's the word I'm looking for. They're, they're going to get the law. So this is what he says in verse one. He says, "Then he said to Moses." Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. 
Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Now let's skip on over to verse 9, down the passage a little bit. It says, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, the, the prophets that came with them, and 70 of the elders went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. So what's happened here is they've come up and they're seeing God from distance. And reading the passage, I believe they're actually seeing God. Uh, he has made himself his presence there on Mount Sinai. And he's invited the elders to come forward and these prophets and Moses and Aaron. And they see God from a distance. And I think it's very important that this reads a little bit like the other visions in that it talks about the sapphire place that he's standing on. Because that really ties this in to the other visions you read about God in Scripture, the other things where people see the throne room of God or they see God and standing. Uh, in Revelation, we're told about the crystal sea that's before the throne of God. And that's not unlike a sapphire sea of glass. Sapphire is blue like the sky. And in fact, it even says, as if it were a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven or sky for clearness. So he's seeing this clear uh, crystal before that, that, that God's standing on here when he sees God. And you also get that later in visions of God too. And I think, that's, I think that's interesting. You start getting that, even as early in the Bible as Exodus, you start getting that, that kind of description of gemstones with God and crystal, you know, and uh, sapphire and things like that. I don't think it says they see his face. Correct, they know. Yeah. Remember Exodus thirty three twenty. Mm-hmm. You cannot see my face. Right. No one can see my face and live. You're absolutely right. Uh, in fact, they. I think this is what I think is happening here. I think they're far enough away from God they can see him in the distance, uh, but they can't make out his face. They can't see it, or maybe they're just kind of like. This translation says you cannot see my face, so no one can see me. Yeah. 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 Well, in this this passage, it says he does not lay his hand on them. Right. Yeah. He doesn't destroy them. Correct. Yeah. Exactly. You know, so I don't know if he's giving them a special allowance here or if they just can't see his face from where they're at. It could be one of the two. And so they, it says here. He lay his hand on them. Right. Yeah. Maybe he made some kind of decision. It was a grace. Yeah. Made himself. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So they actually have a meal there on Mount Sinai of some kind. And I think there's kind of overtones of the Lord's Supper here. 
uh, that you can draw into it. Uh, that you know, it's, you see these a sacred meal being eaten by the people of God here, the elders of Israel, and they sort of represent. You know, they're the elders from the people, so they represent the people in a way, being their elders. So you could say this is the people of Israel, in a sense, represented by their, their elders. And they're, so they, they beheld God and they ate and drank. So, and this is exactly what you see in the Gospels when the disciples, they are with Christ and they eat and drink. You know, you can't separate those three elements uh, when you're talking about something like the Eucharistic meal or you're talking about the Passover meal in Scripture and so forth. They see God... And they eat and drink. So you've got both of those elements there. Just like we have, we will have at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that we read about much later. And Christ even says in some of our liturgy that we read from Scripture, I will not partake of this until, until what is it, how does it go? Until the... I will not take the fruit of the vine. Yeah. Uh, until until the, the kingdom of God yeah. is established. Yeah. In, in, and I would say that's when the marriage supper of the Lamb takes place. You know, I don't know. I could be wrong. But that's kind of the way I see it. So. The other thing that comes to my mind here, too, is you know, in some ways, God, I know God does not tempt us, but, but I, think, I think in some ways, He's setting them up. Mm-hmm. Because it's not too long now. Like, what do they do? They start sinning. Yeah. So they build a building. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. I mean, so it's like. It's like here you've, you've had the opportunity to see me mm-hmm. and have communion with me. Right. And yet... Already blown it. Yeah. <laughs> yet, yet you turn away from it. It just shows... Yeah, know, yeah. Power. Right. And, and, and the, the response to that and, and the judgment is that we don't want to hear the voice of God. Yeah. And you go up and right. talk to him. Mm-hmm. Is, yeah. is it after this that God puts Moses to sleep and cuts the covenant? I think no, so. That's kind of does that's Abraham. Abraham. That's Abraham. Oh, excuse me. Yeah. Thank you. That's another vision. Yeah, yeah the point. teacher once taught about that, and it always got my attention that he put Abraham to sleep and mm-hmm. cut the covenant kind of for both sides of the covenant. God did it all. Yeah, know? and you see his vision as he sees a flaming torch passing through the pieces on his path. That's a good point, though, because within this whole lesson sleep is a spiritual event mm-hmm. and, and we're seeing here eating and drinking is a spiritual mm-hmm. event yeah. so is sleeping so, so is breathing left field. so is breathing <laughs> I mean, but it, it's appropriate it's a good word about it it's like the Holy Spirit you know? mm-hmm. uh, so God takes all these things that are absolutely essential to life right. or at least mammal life and, and shows them to be spiritual Sanctified, yeah. yeah if you think of sleeping, you that's that is probably the most vulnerable place that we can be in our sleep. And it's the place of dreams. Mm-hmm. God yeah, speaks just of dreams. dreams yeah. well, it's, 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 it's other world. Right, so right. It's considered us a little death. Mm-hmm. A little what? Death. Yeah, it's a little death. And waking up is a little resurrection. And that's why. So so in this case, in verse 12, do we get to verse 12? I don't think we got to that yet. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone 
what the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. So now I think it's important to point out in both of these cases that God has invited them. God invited the elders of Israel. God invited these two prophets and Aaron and Moses. Whereas later God comes to their tent of meeting, here he's inviting him to where he has set up a place for them to meet on Mount Sinai, his prepared place. And so they meet on the mountain. So God initiates the, the, the whole conversation. He initiates this moment and invites them into this place. So they're called by God here. They're called by God to this moment in this place in order to see God, as opposed to later when God comes and meets them at the tent of meeting. I just think that's an interesting con- uh, contrast. And then in verse, uh, let's see, in verse 14, he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you and behold, Aaron and her are with you. It's the first time they mention her. I don't know who that is. But anyway, whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Verse 15, then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt in Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud, went up on the mountain. He was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So let's talk about the elements of all this. We've talked some about the Lord having something under his feet, like sapphire. Uh, there are, there's clouds, or you could, now this is my interpretation of scripture. Uh, I, think, I think sometimes these visions, sometimes they'll describe this as smoke, sometimes they'll describe it as cloud, sometimes they'll describe it as uh, incense or aroma. But, you know, it's, it's, it's misty, it's cloudy. And that's what, that's what they enter into. And, of course, you've got the Shekinah glory cloud that you see more and more in the book of Exodus and in the Old Testament that, that appears where God shows up in the cloud. But here the cloud is on Mount Sinai. And he sees this fire, devouring fire. And that right there appears in just about every vision that everybody ever has of God. They see fire. Uh, they see fire from his eyes. They'll see fire uh, in his throne. They'll see flaming wheels. They'll see fire of this, fire of that. So fire is important when it comes to the glory of God to see that, that burning flame, that fire. And I can't think of much that seem, seems otherworldly than fire. It's, myst- it's mystifying. When you're sitting there looking at fire, a campfire, or if you've got a fire in your fireplace, and you're watching it, and it just hypnotizes you. You just watch it. You just, it's entertaining for some reason. It's something on a, on a deep level that affects us. Don't know how to explain it, but it does. And so God is described as fire, a burning, consuming fire in this vision. And you see that over and over in these visions. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. And you got the elements of fire. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Is that the tree of life? Yeah. And it's hands. 
Okay, yeah, I got you. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. Isn't there a mountain in Saudi Arabia where the top is just all black and burnt? I don't know. Is that true? It may be. It wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> so, appearance of God is like fire. Another thing that I think is important to point out that it happens on a mountain. A lot of these things happen in high places. These visions, they happen uh, in elevated situations. And it's not always on a, on a natural mountain, but it's still often in a high place, as we'll see as we look at some of the other visions. So I guess my, my goal here with that is to point out consistencies. Consistencies in this. Because when you see something repeated over and over in Scripture about something, that's usually a sign that, A, it's important, and B, uh, it's pretty descriptive. And so I think, you know, in some ways this really is God in glory, what he looks like, what he, what he appears like in glory. And, of course, Moses, they're only getting probably a very, uh, I don't know if hidden is the right word, but a very alarmed, back, you know, their, their view of it is, Careful. They probably can't even see everything because of what we were talking about. They they can't really look upon the very face of God at this point. And so, you know, they're they're describing things that they can see without even being able to necessarily do that, perhaps, you know, in this case. So anybody have any more thoughts on that? When Christ returns, he will come to Mount Mount of Olives coming in clouds. Amen. Amen. It's Christ, yeah. And I said this last week, I still believe this, that um, whenever people in the Bible see God as a human being, they're seeing Christ. Because of what we talked about last week, uh, Colossians says he is the image of the invisible God. And so that kind of tells me that, well, he's the image of the invisible God, then they're seeing him. Because that's, he's the image of God. And uh, God's invisible. But Christ is not, because Christ is the image of God. Amen. Good point. Yeah. I didn't even think about that verse. Great, great addition. Yeah. So what we can gather from this, God is elevated and he's above even the most precious things that you can you can experience, such as beautiful blue sapphire crystal sea. He's above that. He's elevated above that. He stands on it. That's that's what he puts his feet on. Puts his feet on things that we would consider precious, precious jewels. That's, that's where he puts his feet, you know. What does that say about God? It says he's way above what we are, what we, even the things that we value. Is, is blue a priestly color? Priestly blue, royal blue? I don't know. I haven't thought about that. Purple, purple is royalty. I think you may be right, actually. I think I've read that somewhere. Priestly blue. Because I've always thought about priestly blue mixed with sacrificial red equals imperial purple. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's nice. Where's the blue? Is that the jewel? Sapphire. Sapphire's blue. Yeah. The only reason I know that is because my class ring in high school had a sapphire, and it was blue. And it was, well, the color, the color blue didn't exist in ancient world. Well, they may not have called it blue, but yeah. I mean, how did it? 
Is that what you mean? I mean, they knew the, they knew the sky. I mean, they called it gray. They called it gray. Yeah. Okay. The, yeah. The blue is that's a, that's a pretty recent innovation. Okay. okay. The language. Well, I guess they would have recognized sapphire as a certain shade of color. You know. Is that yeah. I mean, if you had like if you had uh, you know purple dye or blue dye, that they were probably using the word for red. Okay. Most likely. Yeah. I don't think the word blue existed. Okay. Rock collection, you don't have a piece of sapphire. Uh, I don't think I have one of those. Yeah. Yeah. It's precious stone. You, you would pay a lot for a sapphire. Yeah, probably so. Yeah. But that speaks to how rare it is. That's true. How valuable yeah. it is. Yeah. Which is an important part of this yeah. passage. Yeah, yeah. The rarity is. That's right. Important. It also has fire in the word. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so another, another thing to take away from this, God's realm wherever he is at the moment, whether it's on Mount Sinai, whether it's in heaven, in the throne room, is otherly and it's of uncorrupt quality, like gemstone. It's, it's uncorrupted. It's, gemstones are probably, in the people of this era, of biblical times, was probably the most pure, uncorrupted thing they could see. Uh, I would imagine that there's nothing more for them, nothing more colorful, nothing more uh, that stands out more than something like that in that day and time. They don't have the colors of modern manufacturing like we do today, you know. And so a gemstone, natural, bright, deep colors was the only time they got to see things like that. And obviously the normal person would probably never get to see something like that. But you might, if you were to enter into a situation where you're in a palace or something like that, you might. Maybe in the temple there were gemstones with the priest and so that set the priest apart as well as ephod and so forth look at uh, cut stone is is mesmerizing to look at too it is like yeah fire. Mm-hmm. it's like it's alive for, yeah for a long time just staring at it exactly people are still fascinated with the view you go out west every time every little town you go to out west there's a rock, there's a rock digging shop. place yeah you know, a rock shop. You know, yeah, yeah 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 whatever rock you want every stuff you know right Sure. Yeah. And everybody does. Yeah. If you go out yeah. West, you're going to come back with a couple of chunks of yeah. crystallized rocks. Exactly. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. they're beautiful. They That's right. The sun, if you put them in your window, the sun hits them. Yeah. It's a rainbow in your house. Right. Right. And, and you can see the colors sometimes dancing in them. You know, it's like it's their lot. So God is, and, and, and let, me, let me say this before I move on to the next vision. God, I think the smoke. Or the or the the cloud or smoke or whatever you call it is a statement of the mystery of God. He stays hidden. He's he's hidden by the cloud, by the smoke, and so he's he's mysterious. He's a mystery. It's only when when we have Christ coming out of the cloud. She, of course, he ascends with the cloud, and as Craig talks about, he will return in the clouds. When he comes out of the cloud, and that's when we can see the image of God. But he's obscured by the cloud, and that's because God has to remain mysterious. Otherwise, he's not God. He has to be. He's he's got to be mysterious by his very nature. He's 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 a mystery. Um, if we completely understood God, he wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be a mystery. So he's a mystery to us, and he needs to remain that way very important that we recognize, I think, that God is a mystery and that he is hidden from us 
And there are many things about him we cannot know and will not know this side of glory. This is another way that God uses nature to testify to himself. Because mm-hmm. clouds at the top is just typical mountain weather. That's true, yeah. So every time you see a mountain with, with the, the top, you can't see the top that is shrouded in clouds. Right. That's yeah. a reminder to us of, of God. Yeah, yeah. Good point, yeah. So we've got God's elevated... His realm is otherly or otherworldly, it's uncorrupt, and he is mystery as hidden by clouds. All right, let's look at another one. This is, this is uh, probably the shortest one we'll see, and then we'll go to a, a, a much more descriptive one. But let me cover this one for a few minutes. So this is in 2 Chronicles 18. And by the way, there's a lot of these. Okay, I, This isn't all of them. I had to kind of just pick a few that I thought were interesting. So... Second Chronicles 18. And this is one that you may not even be familiar with um, unless you've you know, read through this lately or something. Second Chronicles 18, verse 16. And he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. And Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab, the king of Israel, that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one, one said one thing and another said another. And then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said, by what means? He said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and he shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, before the Lord, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of your prophets. Okay, I'll just read a little extra of that so you can get some of the context of what's going on there. So, yeah, this really unusual situation that kind of reminds me of something that happens in the book of Job, really where Micaiah sees the prophet, he sees uh, the Lord, he says, he sees the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing on his right and on his left. So this, this particular passage has less visual elements and more elements about the situation, maybe, than the others. You don't have the... You don't have the cloud mentioned here. You don't have uh, the you know the mountain high place and so forth. But you do have the throne mentioned, and you have the host of heaven. So he is seated on a throne. The host of heaven is present on the right and the left. And this is interesting that there are beings of some kind serving him. They're coming to him, and they're talking about how they can serve him. And then he talks about a spirit comes and says, "I will do this. I will." do this thing and God grants the spirit the permission to go and even be a lying spirit uh, now this could be an entire lesson on its own I'm not going to get into the this real deep here but this is a vision that Micaiah had of the Lord sitting on his throne and the host of heaven standing on the right hand and on his left so what we see here is God is a king because he's on a throne he's a king He's ruling, in other words. He is in heaven. 
And all of heaven, all in heaven, serve Him. They are the host of heaven because they are on His right and on His left. And there are some coming to Him trying to find ways to beat what God wants to happen here. And uh, so I think we can learn a lot just from that situation. As far as God uh, granting a spirit permission to go and lie, that's a fascinating study in and of itself. I, you know, I don't have a lot to say about that other than that's what happens here. Uh, you know, we can talk about that more uh, maybe, but but uh, it's it's the vision of God that He has of what happens in the heavenlies. You see this happen kind of in Job when, again, like I was saying, when uh, there's a there's a conversation in heaven between God and and Satan about you know well my my servant Job and they're it's almost like they're you know it's almost like they're uh, bantering back and forth about whether Job's going to be true or not and and God lets Satan test him and so in this case God lets an angel do something here. And God sometimes does that. He sometimes has His will happen by means that by human standards and what we know God's behavior for us might seem unethical at times. Because He's God, He can do that if He wants to. He can do what He wants. You know, people, people will say, well, I don't want to follow God because He killed children in the Old Testament. You know, I don't want to... I don't believe in God because... He did some horrible things in the Bible, so I discount the Bible. Well, he's sovereign over all creation. He created all things. He can do what he wants. It's not a question of whether um, it's not it's not a question of whether he meets our morality that we feel that we abide by. It's a question of the fact that he's sovereign, he can do what he wants, and we're to submit to him, his commands for us. That's the question. So, uh, yes, Jim. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Isaiah 45, verse 7 says, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I will work yeah. all these things. Mm-hmm. Of course, the definition of evil could be translated maybe in a different way. Mm-hmm. But it just shows the sovereignty of God. Yeah. Even when Jesus, uh, uh, the demons and the demoniac, Yeah, that's right. His yeah. ways and thoughts are above ours. Absolutely. Judgments are past finding out. But he's holy. He cannot sin. Absolutely. That's yeah. Above. Because what he does isn't sin. He can do what he wants. It's all yeah. for his glory. Right. He's in the heavens and does whatsoever he pleases. Yeah. One of, one of the things, y'all, is, I mean, you see it, Adam and Eve, our imagination, when it's given over to evil, is what leads us to sin. Mm-hmm. Imagine that, that I can do it. Yeah. So I imagine what the mountain, what your food is going to taste like, and what I taste it. So mm-hmm. it starts with, and that's when, it, when, uh, when he uh, destroys the Tower of Babel. Mm-hmm. He said that we let
their wicked imagination take them who knows where. Yeah. So what God does, I think often in dealing with that, he says, well, if that's the way you want to go with your imagination, go ahead. Hmm. See where it'll take you. Yeah. So yeah. we see Romans chapter one. You know, okay, I'm giving you over hmm. to your wicked imagination. Take it to the maximum and see yeah. where it takes you. See where you wind up with it. Right. Because it will take you to hell. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, yeah. And, so, and so we see that over and over and over again. I think that's one of the ways that God deals with the wicked imagination. Right. He allows it to happen mm-hmm. because he knows the outcome. He knows the end. Yeah, my, my belief about, because there are those places in the Old Testament uh, where God has said destroy even the children. Yeah. And then Noah's flood, he destroyed, you know, a lot of children. Yeah. But my, my personal view is that God sees the heart. He knows the entire life of that person. That's true. In yeah. Revelation uh, 13, 8 and also 17, 8, it talks about those whose names have not been written yeah. in the Lamb's Book of Life. Since the beginning of time, mm-hmm. now when to me that suggests that uh, at the beginning of time he knew who would and who would not believe or not. Yeah, yeah, because it's that personal responsibility thing. Sure, and it's the only way I personally have ever been able to reconcile his loving God with destroying children like that. Yeah, and I don't envy the Israelite soldiers that he told to do that. Sure. You know, but Anyway, the world looks on that question, so it's very important that yeah, we they study did. it and yeah. have a, you know somewhat of a reasonable mm-hmm. uh, response. One of the big places, and I've mentioned it many times, Acts 17, 26, 27, where God says he chose the time and place we live out our life, and he did this so men would seek him, mm-hmm. those pressures of life driving them hopefully towards him, this sort right. of thing. But it tells me that in those Revelation verses that uh, he knows the heart of those children and all people. Yeah, that may be why some people live, you know, a thousand years on a desert island and never heard of Jesus Christ. Perhaps he always knew they just never would come to him and put them there. You know, this I don't know. Yeah, yeah. No, I I hear you. But, uh, you know, I, I don't like. And I'm not criticizing, but yeah. I don't like to stop there and say, well, he's sovereign, you know, uh, and that's why, as if yeah. that's why there's got to be something deeper uh, in a loving God, uh, you know, killing children in Noah's flood. There's got to be, you know, something yeah. deeper than just, well, he's sovereign, he's the boss. Anything he does, by definition, is okay. You know, well, it's all according to his will. Easy way to look at it. God, God doesn't do anything that's outside of his will, as opposed to the rest of us. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. Like I said a few weeks ago, I think his sovereignty revolves around him allowing us a free will. That's the focus. Anyway. There's, there's another kind of mystery in this passage here, though, because uh, Micaiah is uh, seeing God. Is with his angelic courts, uh, which exists outside of time. Yeah, yeah. But the conversation acknowledges time. Right. I will put a lot that's of true. spirit. That's true. That implies that there's a future. It hasn't happened yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's not, that's, God is not restricted by time. Right. right. So, but how else is Micaiah going to express it? Yeah. Because we are. Change time, right? 
Right. So there's there's a, a mystery of how God works. Yeah. In the framework of time, no time. Too, exactly. That just can't be explained. Right. Yeah. Well, let me let me uh, let me just kind of get into the next vision. We will probably talk about it more next week uh, because this one's a big one. But I'm just gonna I'm just gonna roll it out. Then uh, we'll talk about it more next week. And that's the one from Isaiah six. Now we could study this for a while, so we won't get through this this morning. But uh, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two his feet, with two he flew. And one called to to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him you called, and the house was filled with smoke. Again, you have these elements here. I'll just say that. Again, we'll get more in depth on this next week. But you have these elements here in this passage. Smoke, smoke. the Lord, it says in verse 1, He is sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. So again, you have the, the element of elevation. Uh, in this case, He's not on a mountain. He's in a temple. But He's still, he's still in a high place. And uh, in this case, He's got uh, heavenly beings ministering to Him. The seraphim, just like Micaiah saw. He saw heavenly beings of some kind. Uh, and so Isaiah's seen these things too. And there's, again, continuity between these visions of God. And the fire element comes when, when the angel, who's a seraphim, which by the, mean, by the way means a being of fire. We'll talk about that more next week. Uh, the fire element comes when, when that being of fire takes a hot coal off the altar and touches it to Isaiah's mouth because he is a man of unclean lips. See? So you see, you have the fire there as well in this vision. So, but we'll get into more of that next week. I, I think this is probably a good place to stop uh, because I don't have any way of getting real far into this. This is probably at least a fifteen or thirty minute, twenty minute discussion on Isaiah six. So, so let's stop there, and we'll get more into that next week. Does anybody have any final comments? We've got like just a few minutes. Anybody? What's that real quick? It's interesting. Yeah. What's the very first thing that Isaiah says after? Uh, yeah, whom, he says, whom shall I, here am I, send me. Yeah, that's his first word. Yeah, yeah. Huh. After his sin has been wiped away. Right, yeah, that's awesome, yeah. That's great. That should be our response too. Right, right. Amen. Good word. All right, thank you all. Appreciate it. Thank you.